everybody, and welcome back to the Chiluminati Podcast, episode 217. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the struck-off-and-die duo of L.A., Jesse Nunes. That sounds like something that you want somebody to go do that you don't like. <laughs> go struck-off-and-die! Struck-off-and-die, <laughs> you piece of shit! <laughs> Uh, they were Tony Gardner and Phil Hammond. I'm still still lost. No, no. All right. They're British comedy duo active in the 90s. Uh, let's see. They covered various areas of health services, apparently. They had their own BBC radio show. Oh, those hilarious health services. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> uh, the Infant in the Whining Schoolboy, August 17th, oh 1994. The Lover Sighing Like a Furnace. Are you sure these aren't from 1894? Well, these were uh, their take Penny on like Dreadfuls? Shakespearean themes. Okay. All right. From uh, a show called As You Like It. The Shakespeare show? Yeah, the Shakespeare show. Looks yeah. like they did some, some radio Shakespeare stuff. All right. They also did stuff in 93 that was like, uh, you know, goofy fun times. Complete it's series. All- one through three. You can get it right now oh. on Audible. Only 50 more episodes for us to have a working knowledge of 80s through 90s British comedy. I'll get you all there, I promise. It's my one, my one devote promise to you all, is you'll learn all about the UK comedy duos. Both good I and love bad. that. And my promise to you is that as long as you keep going to patreon.com slash pod and giving us a little bit of your money, a little bit of your hard-earned bread, we'll... Keep just laying up these thick, fat, golden bricks of Ugh. audio beauty Ugh. right into your ear canals, Ugh. straight from our magic holes. If Ugh. you know what I'm saying, and uh, that's what I'm—that's my main message. But I also want to reach out to those disgustingly rich listeners that we have out there. <laughs> I know that I know how I don't it think goes. you're disgusting. I think you are a job maker the, and yeah. upstanding entrepreneur. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I want you to entrepreneur that cash into my pocket, baby. That's exactly baby. what I'm saying. Listen, I'm jealous of you. We're all jealous of you. We think you're great. And it's awesome that one night while you were on you know, Google, you came across us when you were looking for like sexy Bigfoot or whatever the hell way you got here. You know, I don't know how you got here, but I'm glad you're here now. You to us, you're part of the family. And that's why you should share with us your riches. And I think just if one of you could just go sign up for that $10,000 a month slot. Think about how hilarious that would be. Think about how funny that so, would be. What a good goof. It'd be so, so silly for you to go yeah. and drop 10K on our Patreon. And it would fund so much great stuff. And on top of us suddenly becoming your personal paranormal podcast for a month, <laughs> uh, you'll get all the, the benefits that everybody gets, like ad-free episodes and access to our show Rotten Popcorn, in which we watch Mathis's weird broken video store of... of of uh nightmares uh <laughs> movies and uh also slowly the x-files and uh <laughs> we do mini sodes every week where you hear about all kinds of stuff lately i've been carrying on the story of the green stone uh and uh before somebody else posts on the subreddit yes i do know about the smurfs game that has the green stone in it i i've seen it it's like the la Llorona movie dude have you also seen the jeff the mongoose movie coming i heard that that is coming <laughs> that's also if, coming if if you're out there, person who books press tour dates for Nander Fodor and the fucking Gef, Jeff the Mongoose movie, send Simon Pegg to my podcast. Yeah. <laughs> send Simon Pegg to my podcast. We'll do Jeff the Mongoose too. Send it. Patreon.com slash pod. If you're rich, give us $10,000. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. It's the I'll World's Fair. i believe whatever you want. They're killing people at the World's Fair. Yeah, they did. They killed some people. It's crazy. After I've been killing people in Baldur's Gate 3 fucking for like 100 hours. Calm it yep. down, nerd. So also, uh, when you're listening to this, oh, it'll already be too late. We'll be in uh, Indianapolis. But you can be excited because the next couple episodes after this one, there'll be some special guests maybe. We'll see. Uh, I might be out in L.A. with the boys themselves. We've got some cool things I want to do while we're in L.A. we got some cool ideas. I'll say. We gotta, you're right. You're right. You're right, Alex. we got to talk about none other than Herman Webster Mudgett. It's been a couple of weeks. Mudget. I don't know if you remember the story of good old Webster Mudget, uh, also known as H.H. H. Holmes. Who could forget a name like Herbert Webster Mudget? Herbert Webster Mudget. And you know what I just uh, I just realized over the past week is that his like great great grandson um, 
was also at some point basically saying that he was also the uh, was also Jack the Ripper because Jack the Ripper was happening at the exact same time this was going on. Uh, And so his grandson, like, as came out a few years ago and was like, my my great, great grandpappy also Jack the Ripper. Uh, Absolutely a lie. He is not Jack the Ripper. (laughs) Yeah, it wasn't at all him. Definitely not him. Totally different M.O. Totally different. It's so bizarre, uh, you know, but you know, just, just to put that out there in case there are people who are like, wait, wasn't he Jack the Ripper? He wasn't. No, A.J.H. Holmes was just a weird kid in a small town of uh, very religious folk who teased his friends, liked to scare them with skeletons, would dissect animals and like hide their remains in the woods. And all the while, as he got older, the people in town, his family all kind of knew and whispered about the weird shit that Mudget was getting up to. But eventually, after college and after he moved away for that, he was looking for a new start, a place where nobody knew who he was, where he could walk in as H.H. Holmes and nobody would know who Webster Mudgett is. And that's where we left off last episode, as he packed his bags at the age of 25 and headed to the bustling streets of Chicago. And with a plot in mind, because lest you forget, the one big thing he was also really good at was fucking insurance scams. The man was uh, stealing corpses to pass off insurance scams to make a ton of money. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny that like one of the things that serial killers we can add to the bingo card is like a side hustle, like a really obsessively weird side hustle. For John some Wayne reason. Gacy with his construction. And, and like he's like chicken. He's like a chicken maven. Like what the fuck is going on here? Like you got to do something with the rest of your day. They're it's wheeling like, and uh, dealing relationships. It can't always be like a sexual thing. You got to spend time with that person. So what right. are you going to do? Right. Even Same thing killers. here. You gotta, yeah. you gotta, if, between murders, you gotta fill the time with something. You're right. They're still well-rounded people. They shouldn't be defined by their string of <laughs> uncaught murders. That's, I don't know that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, according to his own confessions at the end when he was arrested, the, he confessed up to 27 killings in his time in Chicago and his various activities in the surrounding areas. However, at the end of today's episode, after his arrest and we talk about what happened, we'll see how much of that we can actually confirm and how much of that is likely H.H. Holmes being an egomaniac and spinning a story that's much grander than it actually was. But we're going to start in 1886 in Chicago. A man seemingly ordinary but weirdly enigmatic stepped off a train and into the heart of the Windy City. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like into our hearts. H.H. <laughs> H. Holmes Munch. here to love yeah. you. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this man, known to most as a Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, was in reality Herman Webster Mudgett, lest you forget, and he carried with him a weird darkness that really dictated his actions and would soon permeate the very foundations of a seemingly innocuous building out in Englewood, which is where he found himself. Englewood? Englewood, yeah. All right. But not, like, not California Englewood, right. you know, like, like yeah, yeah. Uh, which, Illinois Englewood, yeah. I guess. So who ended up taking this guy down? The Flash or, uh, or what? Yeah, well, yeah. yeah, I think he became the reverse <laughs> Flash or something. Yeah. What, uh, what, what time of 1886 did he get there? Do you know? Ooh, that's uh, August. I believe it was, I'm like 99% sure it was August in mm, 1886. Interesting. Okay. Let me double check that. I can very quickly check that. No, I mean, that's fine. That's, so that's post uh, Haymarket Riot, which, you know, the city would have been pretty stressed at this point in time yep it is, is august august of 1886 just to confirm okay all right what is that uh the haymarket riot was in may of i think may 18 uh 86 it's basically a riot that occurred in the aftermath of a bombing that took place um there were like labor demonstrations as was a thing that happens frequently and there was a bombing that took place at one of them and a riot, like a full ass riot broke out police protesters fighting just society breaking down people I mean, just going I mean 1800s about yeah. it though like the 1800s like off the coast out the further west you go the less like organized life was it was very chaotic out there yeah dude over yeah. here in 1896 or whatever it was like fucking dudes in cowboy hats walking around on the dusty right, exactly trail. out yeah. in california yeah there's like nobody out there like it's yeah, all this very was the, empty the, area they, the haymarket riot was like the symbol of workers struggle at the time this is yeah. this is all kind of leading to that point where everyone's like workers rights workers rights and then some countries straight up went communism and some countries but it was like 
Universally around the world, people were pissed off. And then America was like, the miracle of American capitalism. Personified <laughs> in a fair that you can visit. And right. Agent Holmes very much took care, uh, like took advantage of that. Not mentioning that, Jesse, is uh, he had like there was never anybody not willing to work at that time when he showed up. He was hiring people left and right to do these odd jobs. And then a lot, a lot of them ended up just disappearing. And nobody really knows what happened to them. We have our guesses and assumptions, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, uh, Holmes at this point in his life was a tall, uh, some say, some, some might say distinguished figure. There is a picture you can go look at him. He's that perfect, like, 1880s mustache taken care of and like a bowler hat on top. He was always well-dressed. He had a tailored suit standing out even among the well-heeled travelers. And his features were sharp with piercing eyes that seemed to take in everything around him. He genuinely looks like if he walked out onto a stage in a vaudeville act that the audience would fucking hiss at him. Oh, like, <laughs> see, the thing is, is like he was extremely charismatic. Women flocked to Holmes. They he went through many relationships. We're going to get we're, we will talk about a couple of them. Yeah, his demeanor like radiated an air of self-assurance. He was so confident in everything he did and to be an egomaniac like he was. He kind of had to be. But those who dared to look closer would detect an unsettling edge beneath that calm facade that he very regularly put forward. To the citizens of Chicago, he would introduce himself as Dr. H.H. H. Holmes. However, that was just one of his many masks worn by dear old Herman Webster Mudgett. As he set foot onto the platform, few could have imagined the diabolical plans he harbored or the sinister legacy that lit- hangs over our head still today in pop culture, to the point where even the stuff that we're almost certain is not real is still like what is known about H.H. H. Holmes. He etches himself into like the very soul of Chicago. That's so fucking crazy, dude. I know. It's like some people thought he was nice, but other people caught him going, nah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, you would actually imagine someone like that Holmes, you know, with his cackling laugh and his well-dressed kind of attire, his first destination arriving in Chicago would be a grand hotel or an entertainment establishment. He had a lot of money from the amount of scams that he pulled before he got out uh, and moved on his own. God, it must have been so easy to be a con man back in the day. Well, especially one that's even remotely like competent, like H.H. Holmes. Absolutely what I Because mean, what that's I not where he went. He went where I would say the most, uh, a lot of uh, cult targets are, where some of the most um, vulnerable people live. Uh, instead, his path led him into the quieter neighborhood of Englewood, and there at the junction of South, well, South Wallace Ave and West 63rd Street stood a very modest drugstore owned and operated by an unsuspecting elderly couple. Yeah, I'm uh, looking at it right now. You can go straight down to Street View and check it out. Uh, at the moment, it is an Aldi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It's Direct. an Aldi, and then across the street is a post office. Okay. Yeah, uh, that makes sense, I guess, now. Um. The site of the murder <laughs> castle. <laughs> uh yeah so he oh, it's called there. Englewood it's not Englewood like e- in the same E-N-G-L-E wood yeah, yeah, yeah. oh it's no, Engle Englewood yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Englewood Englewood and in California yeah. it's Englewood. Englewood did I say Engle I'm sorry Engle Englewood there we go oh oh math is just his balls what just, happened there his, his balls just dropped oh hello what's oh going on <laughs> and so he strode in strolled in rather to that small little drugstore owned by that elderly couple you can imagine a bell on the door jingling as he steps through and he entered these two lives where he would never exit their lives until they would also leave mysteriously. Amidst the dizzying pace of Chicago's urban sprawl, the Englewood district offered a quieter and almost idyllic respite for Holmes. It was nestled away from the louder clamor of the city's pulsating heart. Englewood had like an aura of tranquility and domesticity to it. Its streets were lined with homes that, co- uh, not homes, but homes that echoed the stories of, of many, many families living there for a few generations by now, and local businesses that served as cornerstones to the community, much like the drugstore Holmes found himself at. And it was here at this cross section of streets that he walked into this quaint drugstore, its wooden facade painted in fades, shades of blue and white, at least that's what we're told, because uh, the pictures weren't color back then bore witness to countless neighborhood tales. So this, is, this was the drugstore like, that this small town went to. Everybody knew the owners of this drugstore. That's just kind of how the town it was. Inside, shelves stocked with medicine bottles and glass jars. This is also the time you could walk into this place and probably buy, like, uh, you know, uh, arsenic. No problem. Time out. Time <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I went to Street View. Oh, okay. On, on the corner of 
Wallace and 63rd is a mural of a hand shaking another hand that's actually a snake, and it says, love all, trust no one. Yeah. And that is the funniest thing I could ever imagine being on this corner. Bueno, 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 bueno. Well, of course that would be there. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense to be there now. So this drugstore was owned by the Drayton's. It was a, like a legacy store. People knew these people. It was a testament to years of hard work and dedication by the two of them. And their world, built on trust and loyalty, especially in the 1890s, was about to be intruded upon by someone who did not give a shit about anything else but themselves. And so that ordinary afternoon with the sun casting those long shadows on these, at this time, cobbled streets, the drugstore's bell announced the arrival of Holmes. And in strode, uh, as he strode in, tall, still impeccably dressed, and having that sophistication wafting off of him, every movement he made seemed measured. Every gesture calculated and refined. He approached the counter with a polite nod, placing a prescription right on top of it. The Drayton's, ever welcoming, greeted him warmly. His name, he said, was Dr. H.H. Holmes. And to the unsuspecting couple, he was just another customer, albeit a bit more polished than most around here. And over the next few weeks, his visits became more and more frequent. Oh my God, it's like, what about Bob? But with the dude who Dorothy turns into You're the You're going to have to explain yeah. the reference to me. What about Bob is a movie from the 90s where Bill Murray <laughs> plays an annoying neighbor on vacation and drives Ooh. the family crazy. Uh, and uh, I said, it's what about Bob, except with uh, the dude that Dorothy turns into the Wizard of Oz. And that'll be Professor Marvel from the beginning of the Wizard of Oz. Uh, Ooh, okay, okay. Who flies on his hot air balloon to the land of Oz and becomes <laughs> Oz the... The great and powerful. It, it's so almost like go. that, but the opposite in that, like, the Drayton's very much welcomed him. Um, they did not, did not hate <laughs> yeah, him. Yeah, it's almost like that. It's yeah. almost like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't just for, obviously he wasn't just there for prescriptions. He seemed genuinely interested in the workings of the store itself, often engaging the Drayton's in conversations about the latest advancements in medicine or discuss, discussing innovative business strategies to try, to try to help elevate their modest store in town. And his affability wasn't just limited to the Drayton's. Holmes, with his easy demeanor, quickly became a familiar face to Englewood regulars. He'd chat with young mothers about the best cough syrups for their kids, give advice to elderly gentlemen about alleviating joint pains, and even share a light joke or two, evoking laughter that echoed within the confines of the small store. He was ingratiating himself into a town who very much seemed to love him from the get-go. It's like he found somebody who was like, I would like to replace them like a body snatcher and just like learned their whole everything. It just it rem like it, to me, I look back and it, it was like his childhood was him refining his 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 skills to disappear into being who he wants to be. And the town couldn't he couldn't do that in his town because everybody kind of knew his dark secrets. He wasn't quite refined there. He was getting caught quite a bit. Um, but here, nobody fucking knows who this guy is. And it's like at a very tumultuous time. Obviously, beneath that friendly, the veil of friendliness lay a mind that churned with bizarre and evil machinations. Holmes' intent wasn't merely to befriend people. He was, with every interaction, weaving a web, pulling strings tighter around the Drayton's and their cherished establishment. And as weeks turned into months, the elderly couple found themselves leaning more and more on the doctor, Holmes. His idea for the store was innovative to these folks. And the profit margins began to noticeably increase. His suggestions were working. But it wasn't just his business acumen that endeared him to the couple. Holmes had a way of making himself indispensable. He'd offer to manage the store on the days they felt unwell, or even suggest that they take a day off while he handled the operations because they'd been working so much. It was a slow and almost imperceptible malevolent takeover, weaving his way into these people's lives without them having any idea. This one, like, oh, I know what this is like because I Ooh, witnessed yeah, this yeah, yeah. firsthand. Uh, not going to drop any names, but um, in our space here on the Internet, we, we know a lot of people. And there was a couple that started dating. And over time, as she became more and more successful, uh -oh. he became more and more like, I'll drive you around. I'll, do I'll take care of this. Know, I'll do this thing. I already know who this is. Yeah, uh, this like, could be like, to me, it's like two different couples I'm thinking this of. This could be like could 14 be... different couples. But it's <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I'll start taking them. And then her license 
expired. And he's like, don't worry, I'm driving. Don't worry. And just more and more, as she became more successful, he permanently clawed. He's like, I'm here forever. You can never get rid of me because if you get rid of me, your life crumbles. And it was crazy watching that happen. And if you ever were like, maybe we should bring this up. You couldn't because at that point it was like he is the one person in my life who actually takes care of me and does this stuff and is always here. And it's like, yo, you're a baby person now. You're too much in the woods. Like it's it's very like they he took her by the hand and gently walked her into the woods that wasn't so thick. And but by the time it's too late, there's no way out. Think of it. You can't get above it. Like you can't get above. It was crazy. And I and seeing that, I totally understand how an elderly couple could Mm. fall for someone coming in. It would be even easier in the 1890s in a small town where trust is like still bizarrely like given away for free. But Very this is weird. this is just like south of Chicago. Chicago's huge at this time still. So yeah, it's small, but it's still like the big city's right there, and it's so hard to trust people. But a nice man coming to our small part of the city, this is beautiful. I'm so what's that, like, what's I can that see movie? It. What's that movie with the Playboy girl and it's Eric Roberts is like her boyfriend and he kills her, but it's like but it's like uh before that he like buys her a car with her own money and stuff like that. Oh, what the I, fuck I is it called? I don't Star- know what you're talking about, but Weirdly enough, when you said, when I said Chicago, and you said, what is that movie? Before you even explained the movie, I was about to shout out The Hudsucker Proxy, which is a whole other thing. That's about hula hoops. That's, that's, that's hula hoops. But that's I don't on know pop, why that came to my mind. And, but, that's five years down the line in Rotten Popcorn. <laughs> the Hudsucker Proxy. What, what is, what is, is there like even like a... It's about no, it's proxy. It's about it, hula hoops. It's dude. about hula hoops. It's about America, I guess. It's about hula yeah. hoops and it's about America. So as days turned to weeks and weeks <laughs> to months within the community, whispers started just popping up. Some were in awe of the transformation of the drugstore under the guidance of this mysterious uh, doctor from who knows where. So I got the hiccups out of nowhere. Others, a more skeptical lot, wondered about the sudden absence of the Drayton's. Because at some point, the Draytons, according to Holmes, left for California. Overnight, without telling the town, they had just gone. They were done. They retired, and they went out to California. And so, but because Holmes wormed his way into town, that they, the town, uh, there's a huge chunk of the town that just believed this guy. They fully believed it. And as uh, the store, once an emblem of warmth and familiarity, now had a looming, almost palpable shadow of intrigue, as at the heart of it was just H.H. Holmes. His initial interactions were innocent enough. He was a patron, then a friend, and before long, an indispensable part of the business. Holmes possessed that charm, but eventually the couple, quote-unquote, retired, and Holmes found himself in possession of the drugstore. Now, during all of this, He's not staying in a hotel. He's not staying in town. He's staying across the street in a local hostel. That's just like not a good look. Like, like it's fine. It's cool. It's just not like a vibe that I want to be putting out when I'm like ingratiating myself into like town as like this like weird debonair gentleman man. It's just a weird vibe in a hostel. Like to give you an idea who this elderly couple were too, like, uh, they were both obviously charmed by him, but Mrs. Drayton had like a penchant for herbal remedies. She'd often find herself engrossed in discussions with the, the citizens about the potential synergy between like traditional herbs and modern medicine, as that was like, we're in the time where modern medicine is making a lot of headway very quickly uh, right. over the next couple decades. And Mr. Drayton was just a businessman and just simply taken by Holmes' insights into optimizing the store and seeing those results turn into tangible profits. He even like things like just how to stock product was something Holmes like changed how they did, like the way things were presented on the shelves, what was presented, where it was presented, all changed and all turned into more money. So those weeks, like I said, turned into months. He was a uh, daily visitor and uh, eventually the, the elderly couple did kind of leave. Children would curiously peek from behind shelves, hoping to catch a glimpse of the doctor's uh, tricks with medicine bottles, because that's how he ingratiated himself with the children. He would get medicine bottles and juggle them and throw them around and make them disappear. He'd like make the kids laugh. And uh, so not only would the, the adults have solace in this man's knowledge and presence of like medical stuff, but the kids loved him. He was super fun to them. And he like did all kinds of fun tricks. 
Uh, it's so bizarre. These, this guy was more than a business consultant that he was a friend to this couple. Their trust in him grew to the point where they'd leave him in charge of the store when they needed a break, like I said. And uh, the drugstore's ledger, once managed by Mr. Drayton, now bore entries in Holmes' meticulous handwriting. Like, he had taken over their ledger, too, before they were, Yeah, quote, unquote, he basically left. learned, he's like, he's like a pod person who, like, learned their business and ways, and then suddenly... <laughs> such a, I love that, yeah, it's exactly he's that. He's like a cuckoo bird, yeah, he's like Other whispers, up. it's not to say that all townsfolk did trust him. There was a small <laughs> amount of them that whispered about where this man, uh, how this guy ended up in Englewood, what was the story behind those intense eyes, that, like, the almost, like, dead gaze that he gave everybody despite his charismatic outward appearance. And why, despite his growing influence over the drugstore, did certain aspects of his life consistently remain shrouded in mystery? Just stuff that he would never talk about, never bring up. He literally left as little detail about himself as possible and only told what was absolutely necessary. And that duality was enough to get people uh, talking, but it also had a very elusive aura that drew people in, including many of his female victims down the line. Um, the neighborhood regulars began to just began to actually take note of the change in management. The doctor was always courteous, serving customers with a disarming smile and engaging pleasant talk. But beneath that, obviously, he continued his plot. Where were the elderly owners when they disappeared? The most common narrative was that they had decided to retire and move to the sunny climes, uh, climates of California, entrusting their beloved business to the competent hands of Dr. Holmes. Few question the story at all. Primarily, primarily because the drugstore continued to flourish under its new management. But the truth was far more chilling. With the elderly couple out of the picture, Holmes wasted no time in solidifying his hold on the property. It was the first piece of what is a, a dangerous and deathly puzzle that he was crafting, the cornerstones of a nefarious empire that would grow out from Englewood. The drugstore was just the beginning, and as Holmes' roots dug deeper into Chicago's soil, the city remained blissfully unaware of the murderer and serial killer that had descended upon it. As Dr. Holmes tightened his grip on the Englewood drugstore, his ambitions began to stretch far beyond its walls. The unassuming corner of South Wallace Ave and West 63rd Street, which had once hummed with the benign comings and goings of a neighborhood pharmacy, was soon to become the beating heart of Holmes' labyrinthine web of deception. With the Drayton's sudden unexplained departure to California, a narrative Holmes was all too keen to propagate, he became the sole custodian of their life's work. The shop's inventory transformed. New and exotic drugs filled the shelves, reflecting Holmes' expansive knowledge and desire to position the store as the premier destination for medicinal needs in Englewood. Word spread about the revamped establishment and its charismatic new proprietor. Customers, both old and new, were drawn in, captivated by Holmes' charm and the store's unparalleled offerings. This is just like the best damn chicken place in the city. Just, it's wild to watch the focus become, I'm going to be the best at X, but also kill people. It's fucked because he just could have just run it. Done that? He had his out. But like, this is the thing, right? The murdering for him, this is, I think for him, he would be what I would consider, um, like almost like a, I guess almost like a process killer. It's not about the killing. It's about everything that leads up to the moment where he kills them. It's the power, the control, the manipulation, how much he can squeeze out of them for money until they're no longer useful. And then that's when they mysteriously disappear almost always. And this is, like you said, kind of just like the first step in taking over this store after ingratiating himself well into the town. The drugstore's basement, previously that was used for storage, underwent extensive renovations under homes. Strange deliveries arrived under the cloak of night. Large quantities of quicklime, a substance known for its ability to rapidly decompose organic matter and oddly shaped construction equipment, all started arriving. Neighborhood children whispered tales of eerie sounds emanating from the depths of the store late at night, an unsettling symphony of muffled screams and metallic clangs. Those, though, are likely a little bit overblown, though the metallic clangs and stuff as things were being built, certainly. As months passed, Holmes' entrepreneurial spirit seemed insatiable. Properties adjacent to the drugstore began being purchased, always through a bizarre, convoluted series of transactions that heavily obscured Holmes' personal involvement. We're talking fake names, fake company, and money that was being used from the scams of life insurance stuff that he had in the past. Weird. 
With a rapidly expanding footprint, he embarked on his most audacious project yet, the construction of a grand multi-story edifice that the locals began refer, uh, referring to as nothing other than the castle. The murder castle. Oh, the castle. No, no just the castle. Just the castle. The normal castle. <laughs> To the public, the castle was a marvel of modern architecture and a testament to Englewood's growth and prosperity. Holmes touted it as a hotel, perfectly positioned to cater to visitors of the upcoming World's Columbian Exposition of 1893, but its labyrinthian corridors, soundproofed rooms, and hidden passages told an entirely different story. The building was a maze by design, designed by a mastermind with exits that led to blind alleys and rooms that seemingly vanished into thin air. While the it's very weird. It almost reminds me of um, the, the Winchester. Winchester home. Yeah, yeah the Winchester mm-hmm. house. Yeah, but yeah. like a way smaller scale. And that. hers was to stop ghosts from like figuring out stuff. This like was. Chase, it's people. very like actually like a like a superstition from a different culture that she like built a modern craftsman house. Uh, that's a whole. That's a whole other wild. Thing. Yeah, that's yeah. a whole other thing. This is. <laughs> I, okay, so he made literally like one of those Tales from mm-hmm. the Crypt slash Goosebumps murder houses where it's like, don't go in there, kids! It, it, pretty much. Cool. While cool. the intricate passages and darkened chambers of the castle concealed Holmes' most sinister street secrets, another realm of intrigue and deception existed parallel to this man's life. His entanglements with the, uh, with the female sex. Among the many who were lured into the treacherous waters of his life, the tale of Emmeline Sigrund stands out as a poignant testament to Holmes' malevolent magnetism and the amount of manipulation he was willing to pursue. Emmeline, with her raven black hair and doe-eyed innocence, was a woman of ambition and dreams. Hailing from a modest background, she carried aspirations larger than the confines of her current life. As a typist, her days were filled with monotonous tapping of typewriter keys and the humdrum life of an office gig, but she harbored a burning desire one that would set her on a collision course with the enigmatic Dr. Holmes. She wished to trade her typewriter for a stethoscope and venture into the world of medicine. And nowhere better in Englewood to learn about medicine than Dr. Holmes. In the vast expanse of Chicago, their paths crossed one fateful day. Holmes, ever the charmer, presented himself as a well-established doctor and entrepreneur. His tales of surgeries, medical breakthroughs, and the labyrinthian corridors of the castle, which he portrayed as a beacon of prosperity and modernity, left Emmeline starry-eyed. He spoke eloquently of his adventures, painting vivid pictures of his opulence and success. It wasn't just words. The tangible evidence of his affluence was evidence uh, in, in his fine clothing, the gold watch that dangled from his waistcoat, the sheaf of banknotes he casually often displayed. The, the talking crow that lived on his shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> Don't trust the doctor. Nothing has changed about the play a game. Dress no. well, show money for no reason. <laughs> like nothing has changed. You could put this in any time except for gold watch. This is like, what is his name? Tate? Isn't it Tate? Like the asshole who's like, like sex crime asshole uh, did the same thing. All he did was like flex his money and, and shit. That's all he ever did. Yeah. The scam still works to this day. It's wild. <laughs> Uh, speaking of all the rich people out there, uh, patreon.com slash IlluminatiPod in case you forgot. Holmes obviously <laughs> sensed the young woman's aspirations and began to weave for her a dream. He spoke of a world where she, Emmeline Sigrund, could transition from a mere typist to a, rev- a revered medical professional. He promised to be her mentor, to introduce her to the right people, to finance her education, and to pave her path with golden opportunities. The idea of being under the tutelage of such a distinguished doctor was a temptation that was much too alluring for young Emmeline to resist. But Holmes' interest in Evelyn wasn't purely professional or altruistic, if you haven't learned by now. He was smitten by her beauty and youthful naivety. Their relationship rapidly transformed from that of a mentor-mentee to something much more intimate. The Phantom of the Opera and a Singer. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what it was. She, Holmes showered her with gifts, took her to the city's finest establishments, and of course, consistently whispered sweet nothings into her ear. Emmeline, caught in the whirlwind of romance, found herself deeply ensnared in his web. And much like Jesse, you said not too long ago, he's literally doing everything for her. She has no, what, he's paying, like, everything is being taken care of for her, just as you used an example. She says, no, she's fucking stuck. He's basically, like, integrating himself into her entire, like, reality. Mm Mm-hmm, like, fully. Uh, and as the days turned into weeks and weeks into months, that shimmer of the golden dream began tarnishing. 
Emmeline's interaction with Holmes became sporadic. The promises of medical school and introduction seemed to fade into the ether. On the rare occasions when she was seen, her once vibrant eyes seemed clouded with uncertainty and fear. Whispers began circulating in Englewood about her sudden reclusiveness, her pale demeanor, and her apparent reluctance to speak about Dr. Holmes. And then, just as suddenly as she had entered Holmes' life, Emmeline vanished. (sighs) Residents of Englewood, especially those who had seen the young couple together, were left with haunting questions. What happened to the vivacious young woman who once dreamt of being a doctor? Had she simply left to pursue her dreams elsewhere, or was her disappearance tied to the eerie and sprawling edifice that was becoming the castle? The chilling truth would remain buried, much like many of Holmes' secrets in the dark recesses of that malevolent mansion. And that's the thing. A lot of this man's disappearances, the ones we know vanished, we don't have evidence as to what actually happened to them. We never found bodies. We don't really know. We, our assumption is when the, when the castle was burned down, so too was whatever evidence was in there. But we'll get to that because we just know she vanished. Maybe her being sick was evidence of her slow poisoning. We don't know. Simultaneously, Holmes' personal life grew more and more complex. Women were drawn to him like moths to a flame, seduced by his sophistication and constant promises of a luxurious life. Emmeline Sigrin, a young and impressionable typist who disappeared, fell for all of those promises. It's his financial machinations were his forte, man. That's just what he was good at doing and how he locked people in. Creditors, suppliers, and investors were constantly cycling through the revolving doors of the castle each ensnared uh, in Holmes' web of deceit, many of those companies were left bankrupt. Their life savings vanished into the abyss of Holmes' scams. And while financial ruin was common uh, fate for those entangled with Holmes, others suffered obviously a much more chilling end. But yeah, it's very, it reminds me a little bit of like the stories of we heard of like when Trump hired people to like build his his buildings and they would never get paid. It's just Holmes did that to every single person that came through to build and he would work his scams and companies and always push it off until like, they just went bankrupt and no longer could ask for money. He just, and then, or some people just oh, disappeared. The Englewood's bustling community with its family and, tr- and tradesmen was completely unaware of what was happening still. The shadows that were being casted by the castles, uh, and truly when it means castle, like turrets and parapets uh, like in this building, sure. hid secrets that would only come to light years later. His reign over this bizarre, uh, dark castle and his killing empire, I guess, Chicago's underbelly was about to witness the horrors unleashed. His killing empire is a phrase. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, In in the Englewood neighborhood of Chicago, uh, where the castle now sat, under the guidance and design of its mastermind, it was an architectural enigma specifically designed to kill fucking people. It was unlike any other building in the vicinity. On the surface, it was a mixed-use edifice Comprised retail, uh, comprising of the first floor having retail spaces on the ground floor, including a pharmacy <laughs> that Holmes acquired under mysterious circumstances, right? And apartments on the upper levels. To the casual observer, an unsuspecting tenant, it was merely a modern commercial building. But hidden within its walls were a series of mazes, trapdoors, chutes, secret rooms, and a in a, a basement lined and filled with that lie, where all those chutes led to. Lie like this building, like lie, like the L Y E, like the lie that was uh, delivered overnight to him, as we uh, said a little bit ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, it was constructed, right? It, do they have the same people that made the Batcave make this? Like, no, <laughs> like I no, like I no, no, yeah, <laughs> uh, they, like they he cycled through multiple companies and they ended up bankrupt. Most of them ended up bankrupt, and some of the people building it disappeared. But surely people, when they built it, like they were no. like, damn, this is a lot of shoots. No, because there- they were the way. So I, I don't I, I don't really go into detail, but the way Mr. he had them Wayne, them- are we we're building you a <laughs> jet hanger underneath the- your mansion? Yes. He would okay. hire people. To, for example, he would hire people to go build one very specific room and not able to see or touch anything else. And then another team or another company, they were building the pipes that led to each and every room. That's the only <laughs> thing they were able to build and touch and then another person was building the base like it was and it was all at different times over the course of months it was so fractured that nobody really had the complete picture as to what the hell was actually being built i can never believe people can get away with that but it's very clearly they did and it's also the 1890s <laughs> like you know it's still that but still in the 1890s i'd oh i'd be talking to everybody like this dude got shoots in his home That's man. Fucking <laughs> insane 
Let me, uh, you know, I say this for a little bit later, but I, this is a good time right now to go over just some of the things that were built. So this is, I have a little list of some of the areas and rooms. First, one of the things that were built were gas chambers. What? In his home? Some of the rooms, the apartments designed, were designed as airtight chambers where Holmes could release gas to asphyxiate his victims. These rooms had gas lines connected to them, and Holmes could control the release of the gas from his own bedroom. Stop. <laughs> then there how, was the how secret. How sure are we about this? Some of this were pretty positive, definitely like existed. So the question like, really becomes did he use it as often as he claims he did? And right. did they all work all the time? Right. Like, like but this building definitely existed. There was a, like a kill man- mansion for real. There was a mansion for real. The Ooh. the detail, like we know there was shoots. We know there was a basement there were, with there were tenants though. He had people living he had in people apartments there. though, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did they did they still live there or did he just kill them? Some. It was kind of a gamble. Uh, you didn't really know <laughs> uh, if you were what a single mom hell? with a little girl, likely or the kid, you were likely going to be killed, uh, according to Holmes. What else? What? Let me get to the rest. Let me get to the rest. Okay, there was also okay. the secret chute. This was hidden in the walls that where the chutes w- that allowed Holmes to quickly dispose of bodies. The chutes led straight to the basement where he had set up a, an operation that dealt with all that lie uh, to deal with the remains of all the bodies. There was the soundproof vault located near his office. This was a bank vault turned into a torture chamber. Victims were locked inside and with its soundproof design, their screams went unheard due to its airtight nature. Victims often suffocated to death in there. What? <laughs> fucking wild. Often? I, more, I say more than once is me saying often in terms of like that how is, many people he claims to have killed in there. That is Labyrinthian hallways nuts. alone. The second floor was a maze of stairways that led to nowhere, doors that opened to brick walls, and hallways that twisted back on themselves. This design was meant to disorient and trap victims if they were trying to escape, making the escape near impossible. So he literally built the place and was like, on the off chance they get out of the airtight locked room, it'll be like Alice in Wonderland and they'll never know where they're going. This dude is wild. Dude, yeah, this got way more wild than I thought it would. Well, the basement, also known as a basement of horrors, was arguably the most gruesome part of the castle. It was equipped with surgical tables and instruments, suggesting that Holmes dissected a lot of his victims when the bodies slid down the chute. There were also vats of acid, pits of quicklime for decomposing flesh, and a large kiln or furnace presumably used to cremate bodies. Some reports also suggest that there were scratch, uh, scratching racks. He also had hinged walls and secret panels. Certain walls in the, ca- in the castle were hinged, allowing them to be moved or adjusted. This feature, along with various secret panels, enabled Holmes to sneak around and access rooms without being seen. The dude would literally have, like, in the middle of the night, like, the, a wall would move at a place and there with his like fingers and it's like l- hanging like yeah. a vampire is Holmes. <laughs> like, how is that possible, dude? <laughs> this is bonkers territory. How is that possible? And then the last bit, some of the rooms were padded and soundproof to ensure that no cries for help were heard from the outside. Some rooms were entirely soundproof. The, uh, a few were padded, like I said, and like an ins- much like an insane asylum's padded cell, basically which could serve both to muffle the sound and prevent victims from injuring themselves in a bid to escape. It was like a small slapdash of like what was being built at that time, uh, what he was trying to, what, what he was uh, operating. Again, how much of it was operational properly, how much he used. We do know he killed a couple people via the gassing them. Like we know that happened. Um, it's just, did 27 victims happen like he claimed? I was watching... Uh... Uh, the show How To with John Wilson the other day. And on the show, he ended up talking, he, he like was going to extreme lengths to go to the bathroom was kind of the vibe of the show that he was doing. And he eventually mm-hmm. went to this guy who like was slowly trying to move his family into a missile silo, uh, like that he was like converting into a house. I've seen stuff like that online. Yeah. yeah. And he had inside the missile silo, none of the walls were built, none of the None of the, like, toilets were running, anything like that. But there was, in one room, like, every single one of those, like, three-fourth size arcade cabinets standing against one back wall that, that are for sale. And <laughs> all the, uh, like, like, like some, like, shredding metal axe guitar and, like, a half-stack amp and all this crazy stuff. And in my mind, I'm wondering if H.H. H. Holmes was kind of more like that. 
than like this like Batman villain from the 1800s where like he just had these this stuff rigged up and he was like this is sick because <laughs> yeah. it just seems so impossible that that could happen more than one time and then anybody wouldn't just find out about it just from the screaming alone i mean but but okay well yeah but if it was soundproofed as well as he claims nobody'd be able to hear it and you got to keep in mind too the where he positioned his place a lot of his victims were people traveling into chicago or visiting a lot of his victims weren't people who lived in englewood they were people who were coming for the world's fair the columbian fair that was like a lot of who his victims were that's true yeah that's true sorry i'm obsessed with trying to figure out if this story is what sparks a lot of the i don't know like the weird 70s 80s movies of like murder mansion you know mm, I and, bet. I, and i tried to look but there's a lot there's a lot more books than there are movies so there's got to be i mean like a lot of it is so out there that it had to have been like a tales from the crypt episode you know what i mean like there's got to be something right exactly so by the time the building was finally finished and the structure was fully operational Holmes had set his sights on more than just architectural domination. Clearly, he set on being one of the most prolific serial killers Chicago had ever seen. And so, now, using his charm, deceptive practices, combined with the castle that he could bring people to, his real reign of evil began. One of the first was Julia Smith. And by Smith, I spell it S, or she spells it rather S-M-Y-T-H-E. Smythe, maybe? Julia Smythe? Could be. Uh, she was the wife of Ned Connor, who had moved into Holmes' building and began working at his pharmacy's jewelry counter. Yeah, then keep in mind, again, first floor had retail-like spaces, so he had people working, like, where he, like, was also living and having them live. With time, Julia started an affair with Holmes, and Ned, when he learned about it, obviously left Julia, moving away and leaving her and their daughter, Pearl, behind. Julia and Pearl were last seen on Christmas Eve of 1891, not long after Connor left. Holmes claimed that she had died during an abortion, but their bodies were never found. And what happened to them, we don't really know other than Holmes clearly killed them. Wow, so he really did maybe just dump a bunch of people into a giant vat of lye and just disappear them? Yes. Huh. Like, it happened. The question is, did it happen as he said, and did it happen as often as he said? I'm always, I always just sort of assume that he maybe did this like one time. But the fact that it's actually happened more than once is fucking crazy to me. She, uh, you know, then obviously Emmeline, as we said, she, uh, to give you a date when she disappeared, she disappeared in December of 1892. And Holmes' excuse for that was varying. He never really had a certain thing, but she was just never seen again. And in his insidious game of cat and mouse, Holmes also engaged with Minnie Williams in 1893. She was a Texas heiress who Holmes convinced to transfer the deed of her Texas property to a man named Alexander Bond, which was an alias of H.H. H. Holmes, that's, of course. Well, that's my name. Uh, it's, what is better, H.H. H. Holmes or Alexander Bond? I'm biased, but I'm going with Alexander Bond. It's pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it's for a, a serial for an evil H. H. man. H.H. Holmes? H.H. H. Holmes. H.H. H. H. Holmes sounds like a doctor who's a good man. Alexander Bond will rip the, you off yeah that guy <laughs> is a scam he's already a walking copyright infringement so it's then yeah. even more <laughs> impressive than that holmes was able to convince her to transfer it to alexander bond instead of himself obviously and then minnie and her sister nanny were both invited to the castle while the exact details remain murky as ever like most of his neither sister was ever seen again after their visit they literally arrived to visit and then they were just instantly gone Nobody fucking really bothered to figure it out. Holmes' malevolent practices didn't stop at murder. He was also a fucking con artist, lest you forget. He was adept at swindling money from unsuspecting victims and with insurance fraud became another staple of his repertoire even here in Englewood. As the World's Columbian Exposition, also known as the Chicago World's Fair, drew tens of thousands to the city in 1893, Holmes' castle became an attractive location for lodgings. And many who sought rooms in his buildings were never heard from again. The transient nature of the city's population during the fair made it very easy for Holmes to carry out his dark deeds without immediate suspicion. It's worth noting that while the castle was a place of untold horrors, not all of Holmes' victims met their fate there. His reign of terror spanned various locations and involved a myriad of schemes. 
However, the castle was the emblematic piece of Holmes' dark genius, a physical manifestation of what he truly wanted to be. It wouldn't be until later that authorities would begin to grasp the full scope of Holmes' atrocities. Piecing together his intricate web of crimes was a daunting task, but as the walls of the castle were breached, finally, the true horror of what transpired within came to light, cementing Holmes' place as one of America's most notorious serial killers. The initial thing that kind of pulled the thread on Holmes' entire operation was a girl named Sarah, who was a young woman from a rural town, was one of the many people who had fallen into Holmes' web of deceit. Lured by the promise of employment in the big city, she had been given a room in the castle. She quickly became disoriented within its twisting hallways, never realizing the walls of her room could be adjusted to make the space smaller. She felt a growing sense of dread, a feeling that something was wrong, and it wasn't long before she discovered a peephole in her door. And she became aware of right behind that peephole was a small gas nozzle hidden behind a, a, a vent. Panic surged through her as she tried desperately to find a way out, but every door she opened seemed to lead to another confounding hallway or a sealed brick wall. Her desperate cries for help, for help uh, echoed through the hallways, only to be drowned out by the walls Holmes had carefully ins- insulated to stifle sound. The basement, obviously, is where the bodies would end up, and the exact number of victims Holmes tortured and killed like this is still a topic for debate. Some say it was as few as nine, which is still a high number, while others speculate that it was in the hundreds. The no. Grim Seek- I don't think it was in the hundreds personally, but there are quite a few people out there. And I mean, it's easy to kind of slap a number, uh, a big number as people go missing at this time around, even just in this, this area, it was easy to slap it on Holmes. And Holmes was no, uh, would never say no to bringing more infamy onto himself, even after he was arrested. Right. So I don't think it was the hundreds. I think it was probably closer to nine. I think it was closer to a lower number personally. But yeah, there are guesses as high as a couple hundred. Um, yeah, it wouldn't be revealed until Holmes would be captured and brought to justice just one year later in 1894. So his like murder castle was like a three year stint. It was a few years of being built, open in 1891. He had like two or three years where he murdered like crazy. And then he was caught in 1894. Yeah, this, this was all, uh, his, his fall was kind of a win for the police at this time. In the 19th, the swirling yeah. underbelly of 19th century America, when its gaslit streets and promises of new beginnings were kind of lay there like a serpent, with Holmes there ready to strike, as the sun set on a multitude of his sinister endeavors, it was one final gambit, one last act of treachery that would mark the end of his killing spree. In 1894, Benjamin Peitzel, a carpenter by trade and a criminal by disposition, was deeply entangled in Holmes' dark web. Heitzel had been a comp- uh, an accomplice of Holt to Holmes in various fraud schemes over the years. He was kind of his fraud partner. He was a lot of like uh, two man got jobs to get some money. Right, right. Like a, a, a Giuliani, if you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah li- <laughs> yes, there you go. They, sta- they had staged accidents and collected insurance money, always skirting the watchful eye of the law. But Holmes, ever the opportunist, envisioned a grander scheme that involved not just fraud, but murder. The plan was audacious in its simplicity. Peitzel would take out a $10,000 life insurance policy on himself, which today's money is around $300,000. He would then, quote unquote, disappear. And Holmes would, due to his thieving ways, produce a cadaver, which they would claim was Peitzel's body. With the insurance money then secured, they would split the proceeds and move on to their next nefarious like scam. But Holmes, as history has shown, was not one to share for very long. Stop. Stop. <laughs> Insurance fraud is what got this dude. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's, I, yeah. <laughs> yes, it's literally what... what this is it. Let's like get to bringing it. down, you know, like mobsters for tax Capone. evasion. Yeah, Capone this was is the same thing. Same, same thing, yeah. So goofy. One day we'll do more mobster stuff. I, I love the mobster stuff. But Capone stuff. also what? didn't have a fucking vat of lie at the bottom of his house where all his victims turned to... That is, that is a flaw in this whole plan. Most serial killers will bury bodies way out in the middle of nowhere. This guy's like, under my house, it's easier that way. (laughs) So fucking nuts. On September 2nd, 1894, in a nondescript house in Philadelphia, Holmes and Peitzel prepared to uh, to put their plan into motion. Peitzel, trusting his friend, drank a bizarre potion that was given to him by Holmes, purported by Holmes to just help him relax and chill out. As the drug coursed through its system, 
and his world grew more and more dim, Holmes, in cold precision, turned on the gas, letting it flood the room, and it wasn't long before Peitzel was dead, the victim of his accomplice's treachery. To make the corpse resemble an accidental death, Holmes did what he did back in his small town where he grew up. He disfigured Peitzel's body using chemicals, making identification more challenging for the police. However, as with many grand schemes, things didn't go exactly as planned this time. Insurance investigators, growing increasingly suspicious of the amount of claims surrounding Holmes over the years, dispatched a detective named Frank uh, Geyer, G-E-Y-E-R, to look into Peitzel's death. Geyer was methodical, relentless, and had an intuition that that something was wrong. As he dug deeper, the threads quickly began to unravel. He soon discovered that Peitzel's wife, unaware of her husband's death and under Holmes' manipulative spell still, was searching for her missing spouse. She was looking for him. Her alarmingly, uh, more alarmingly, three of Peitzel's children were also unaccounted for, missing. Holmes had taken them under the pretense of reuniting them with their father, leading them on a grim cross-country journey only to murder two of the girls and hide their bodies in a trunk. Jesus. With evidence mounting, though, the noose finally began to tighten around Holmes' neck. And in Boston, on November 17, 1894, the law caught up with H.H. Holmes. He was arrested initially for insurance fraud. But as investigators started piecing together the scope of his crimes, they stumbled upon the horrors of the murder castle in Chicago and the true extent of his malevolence. You gotta keep in mind, he did travel a lot. It's a lot of his insurance scams happened in other cities. He didn't do it all in one place all the time. It was the Peitzel case, with its blend of fraud and cold-blooded murder, that ultimately brought down America's first documented serial killer. That's the other thing. Holmes is technically our first documented serial killer of the well, U.S. Well, like, that's like he was a serial killer. He was something Correct. different. That's what, I mean. that's what I mean by documented. Yeah. He's the first one people kind of acknowledge as what is known as a serial killer back then. Obviously, there were people like Boone Helm before that and others like that were killing people all the time. Wait, so did, they, did the term serial killer come from him? Oh, God. Uh, or did it exist and then this is the first American one is what you're saying? I think like in the 60s. Uh, 1974, it became the term. So it was early for its team. I guess it's what they mean is like that, uh, or what I mean rather is it's like that they note him as like killing as his like main focus. Like it's like all he fucking cared okay, about. All right. So definition wise, unimportant. You mean literally like the, first, the Joker? Yeah, the first yeah. of the first to do gotcha, this. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, that's right. not like in the woods trying to survive or whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was in on November seventeenth of eighteen ninety four in Boston where they arrested him and they started figuring out what was going on in the murder castle and the true extent of his malevolence. And it was this case, the Peitzel case, because of the weird mix that pulled it. Uh, and Holmes was tried and convicted for Peitzel's murder on May 7th, 1896. So he was arrested and sat in prison uh, for two years, uh, for around two years that he, before he uh, finally got kind of put away for it forever. Mm. Um, this particular testament is interesting because it's while he's in prison, after the Peitzel case, that the other murders and other missing people's case he started just kind of claiming to. Uh, it's one, like, this is a really good example, an early example. He'd be like, melted him, melted him. Of a, literally, like, of, of a serial killer who clearly was over-exaggerating the kills himself and what the, the, the house actually was able to be done by. But also, like, anything that went missing, he just kind of was like, I did it, I did it, I did it. And built his own kind of infamy on that. The thing is, that he's very, very likely lying. There's no evidence that that many people were going into Englewood and disappearing into Englewood. And even when he was traveling, uh, not every time he fucking disappeared, people were going away and disappearing, but he would still claim, you know, these things. And I think that leads to why his great-great-grandson or whatever also was like, he was also Jack the Ripper because he was like traveling and maybe was killing. But that's just not, that's just not true uh, on how it went down. Um, sure. How... And before anybody could truly know what the house was like, what it actually was in that home, it was fucking quote unquote mysteriously burned down. The whole fucking place? Yeah, the, the whole castle burned down. Nobody found the lie pit underground? No, like that's, I think that was, that was one of the pieces of evidence that was able to be like seen. Um, yeah, the Holmes castle burned in, let me give you an exact date. August 19th, the row of buildings at 63rd and Wallace Streets, Englewood burned this morning. 
This row constituted the castle in which H.H. H. Holmes, the confessed insurance swindler, now awaiting sentence in Philadelphia, is popularly supposed to have concocted many of his crimes committed in numerous murders. Uh, August 20th, 1895, that's when the house burned down. So while he was in prison, the house burned down. Um, and again, nobody really knew because again, he was arrested for insurance fraud and that's what he was sitting in prison for for while they did this ex like exploration to his killings. Uh, and before they could even really learn much more about the house, the house fucking went down. And as mm -hmm. you can see in the newspaper clipping, it's, he's most known for his fucking insurance, uh, his insurance swindling and quote unquote supposed murders. They didn't even know for that at that point. But regardless, the killing of that particular individual, plus with all the insurance scams, our dear old Holmes would be put to death, hung in 1897. But his story would live on in infamy forever. And that, boys, is the story of H.H. H. It's absolutely unbelievable how wild you could get. Like now, yeah. yep. there's wild people of a different kind, but this is just like you put on a costume, you're like, I'm not, I'm not a Hubert Mudgett. You know, I'm fucking H.H. Yeah. Holmes, the murder master. And he, that's like, all you he, had to he do. He took to that at such a young age where he was like, who he was, what he came from, he just didn't matter. That was all a lie. That's not what he cared about. He was somebody else. New name, new, I mean, new ambition. That isn't, we, we think that in today's society you can't do that, but what the- It's the, harder um, to, but it's still possible. Oh my God, it's possible. So the uh, woman who was just, she had the company. She wore all, she tried to look like- uh, Steve Jobs and she oh, was, when she, she was, was like the the chick who yeah, has like the big eyes, crazy eyed uh, yeah. Thermos Theramos or whatever yeah, the hell that Theranos, thing was called. Theranos, where it was yeah. like a fake blood test that was all BS, and she conned so many people. Yeah, like she and the dude that worked with her were just conning everyone. That's true, and yeah. it happened still. Yep, it definitely happened still. And it's just back then there was, there was they told everyone they were very important, like science doctors and we know our stuff and they just lied and then they got other people to lie for them until finally people were like we probably shouldn't lie anymore like you <laughs> can do that insane. it happens it's absolutely i insane. mean boone helm straight up lied about who he was related to when people would talk to him like it just it's just it's wild and aj Holmes. so the the thing i want to say at the very end here is that in the past uh, about four years some more discoveries have come to light in that a lot of what his home was supposedly how often it was used are being proven to kind of be truly false. There, not only is there no evidence, um, but a lot of the people who were supposedly missing, oh, down the line, you can kind of figure out what happened to them. Not everybody he claims murdered was murdered by them. Other disappearance, other reasons for their disappearances would come forward over the century or two uh, as time would go on. Um, but uh, Holmes, and so like when you're left, what we really left with is like the group of like about nine, whereas like the three women he, he kind of seduced plus the kids he killed, um, along with the older couple, you know, you're looking at, I would say probably nine he killed and he probably used his home. He likely gassed them. How much of that home worked like a moving maze, like they claim, I, there's no way to fucking know. Um, but I'm certain he had a couple of kill rooms that he used to gas people. And he had little like peepholes where he could watch them die too. So, so like the, the spirit of it is there regardless of how real it is. Yeah. The man did kill people. He was evil and he did attempt to build himself a crazy murder castle. He at least believed he had a murder castle and was using it. Yeah. That's fucking nuts. And that is our story of H H.H. Holmes, everybody. Uh, yeah, next week we got a couple special episodes coming for you. Um, we'll, we'll announce the, yeah, you know, we'll keep the guests they're surprises. surprises. Yeah, they're good. They're, they're good surprises. Come see us. I hope you Even come see I'm us. I'm surprised. Yeah. I hope you yeah. come see us at, uh, I hope you come see us at Indie PopCon. Yeah, that'd be great. And well, the, the, when they're listening to this, they're at Indie PopCon. So hopefully they're listening to this episode as they're walking into our panel. Shout out Damn, the show rather. Shout out. Except Elspeth for Jesse. Jesse won't coming. be there. If you're, yeah. Shout out Espis for being like the guest. Uh, Jesse will be out in Chicago doing Cox and Crendor live. For now on, Jesse, thing. I don't need anybody. For now on, Jesse, whenever you are gone from anything, we're just going to bring Elspeth in. I think it's been working I'm like down. pretty good these last couple yeah. times. I'm going to be in Chicago opening a castle <laughs> where I will fill it with lie. The is Elspeth like lies. the female clone of Jesse? Or is Jesse the male clone of Elspeth? I'm the male clone of Elspeth. Let's not pretend. He's J.J. Yeah. Cox. He's not, he's not Jesse. He's, he's, I'm J.J. Combs. Yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> J. J. Jess, Combs. He's, he's Professor Jessimus J. Combs. <laughs> Jessimus Come J. Combs. Come to my convenience, Mart. <laughs> Crendor well, is also here. You.
Uh, <laughs> all right, we're off to do a minisode for patreon.com slash IlluminatiPod. We'll see you next week. Thank you guys so much for your support. Website. Buy our merch. We may have a collectible coin coming very soon what? on the Yeti store. A so coin? A coin. A true a, cryptid currency. I'm going to buy a cheeseburger <laughs> with it. In the Twilight Zone! Goodbye! Bye! Anyway, me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out of here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky. <laughs> <laughs>